Support has been provided by independent educational grants from Astellas, AstraZeneca, Bristol-Myers Squibb, Janssen Biotech Incorporated, administered by Janssen Scientific Affairs, LLC, Merck, Pfizer Incorporated, Sanofi Genzyme, and Eurogen Pharma Incorporated. Hello, this is Vic Nitti, Chair of the AUA Office of Education, welcoming you to another AUA Office of Education podcast. This one in the AUA Expert Series Exchange podcasts on discussion about managing GU cancer. And specifically, today we will be talking about the AUA SUO Astro Advanced Prostate Cancer Guidelines 2020. I am happy to introduce my co-host, Dr. Michael Cookson. Dr. Cookson is the chairman of the Department of Urology at the University of Oklahoma and currently serves as the president of the Society for Urologic Oncology. He was also the vice chair of the guidelines panel that we will be speaking about today. Mike, welcome to the podcast. Uh, thank you very much. Thanks for having me. So, Mike, I thought it would be good just for you to give us a basic introduction, and then we can talk a little bit about how the guidelines were constructed before we get into them. Sure. Well, um, so we missed just by a little bit September as Prostate Cancer Awareness Month, but we all know that prostate cancer is a continuous problem, and we want to raise awareness about it throughout the year. Um, this guideline, believe it or not, was the first time that we did an AUA guideline on the management of advanced prostate cancer that really started with biochemical recurrence and included newly diagnosed metastatic disease. So we had previously published and provided guidance for castration resistance, but we had never really tackled the elephant in the room, which was you know, metastatic, newly diagnosed men. And the reason we did that, the timing for that was based on an explosion of clinical trials, level one evidence, new data coming forward, and a new awareness of how to manage these men. So we were a little late to the dance and coming forward with the guideline, but the nice thing is the timing was really good for a quality guideline. So how are these guidelines constructed? Yeah, so the AUA does a great job of culling the literature. And so they provide sort of the broad net, bring forward the um, key articles, and then we cull those down um, look at the data, they analyze them. Of course, the AUA has their methodology for grading the level of evidence and the grade of the evidence. And then that allows us to provide a framework for the multidisciplinary clinical team to really sit and, and create the framework for what we think would be user-friendly, clinician-friendly guidelines. I will point out that we had oncology, radiation oncology, medical oncology, patient advocacy, as well as statistical support. So there's, there's a lot of heavy lifting that's done behind the scenes to make the guideline panel job easy and also to provide um, those clinicians who use these guidelines uh, with a very user-friendly product. And uh, I understand that the, the systematic review uh, search dates from 1998 through January 20th of 
this year, 2020? That's right. It, it included, I mean, for finer granular details, probably almost 200 articles. Uh, they carried forward about 46 articles from the CRPC guidelines that were previously there. Um, and then they, even after the guidelines got published, with such an explosion of data coming forward, there were like 26 latecomers that were really important to do. And even since we've published the guidelines, a couple of new Sentinel articles that we can discuss tonight have come out in the New England Journal. So there is um, constant gardening because of the fact that we're really developing new treatments and, and new approaches to the management of these men on a really a daily and weekly and monthly basis. All right, let's get into some specifics now. What do the guidelines recommend with respect to early evaluation and counseling? Sure. Well, um, it, it was uh, thought that it's very important, if possible, to get a histological confirmation um, to obtain a tissue diagnosis. You would think that that is a no-brainer, but I can tell you that we manage patients from lots of different uh, clinical environments, and sometimes patients have been treated or recommended treatment without an actual diagnosis. Now, there, we realize there are times when maybe there's an emergent or very urgent situation where treatment is more important than actually getting a biopsy. But in most cases, we really think that's the cornerstone of the, of the evaluation. In addition to that, um, once the patient has a diagnosis, of course, appropriate staging takes place. But whenever we develop a diagnosis of metastatic prostate cancer, we have to consider lots of things about the patient, such as what is their life expectancy, what are their comorbidities, what are their preferences, and then specifically the tumor characteristics. We put all that together, and one of the things the guidelines really puts forward is the multidisciplinary approach. Now that varies with your location and your clinical practice and your environment, but where possible, patients really benefit from a look from a different angle and different disciplines evaluating the best therapeutic approaches. So Mike, you mentioned that there's a bit more information regarding uh, biochemical recurrence in these guidelines. So how should we evaluate and follow patients with biochemical recurrence after exhaustion of local therapy? Yeah, thanks for including that last part because the guidelines previously have tackled like radiation failure patients, with potential local, additional local options, um, that kind of thing. But what we were specifically looking at is you've exhausted your pelvic local options, you've got a rising PSA, how do we follow that? Um, of course, we believe that clinical follow-up with PSA monitoring, periodic monitoring is important. That could be three to six month monitoring depending on the rate of rise of the PSA. We know that the risk for development of metastatic disease has a lot to do with how quickly that PSA is rising. So conventional imaging is still appropriate for these patients to assess bone scan and a CT. Uh, there are new and one FDA approved uh, PET scan, for example, in this space, the flucyclovine uh, PET scan. There's uh, going to be soon um, sort of an explosion of PSA, PSMA type PET scans that will be coming. So this is an area of active investigation in terms of turning up our ability to detect. If you have a rising PSA, where is it coming from? But conventional imaging and serial PSA monitoring are still standards in this scenario. Mike, what do the guidelines recommend regarding treatment of uh, patients with biochemical recurrence? 
That's a great question. And really, um, high-level evidence for treatment of men in this scenario is lacking. And so it really was felt by the panel that in most scenarios, these patients should be closely observed rather than treated immediately with androgen deprivation. So observation is certainly uh, the first option. In some patients and some clinicians, they may find observation unacceptable. And in those patients, androgen deprivation therapy may be instituted. But this is an opportunity to do what we call intermittent therapy. Uh, there have been some studies looking at this, and they're in that group that we consider non-inferior, similar outcomes, if you will. Um, and so intermittent therapy, where you start the therapy, drive the PSA down, and then give the patient um, sort of a holiday, a drug holiday, until a defined period of time when their testosterone returns and their PSA rises up again. It, it may be an appropriate way to manage those in whom observation is not appropriate or those in whom find observation unacceptable. Now, I think another area that we're faced with um, needing to make decisions a lot uh, about is assessing men with newly diagnosed metastatic hormone-sensitive prostate cancer. What do the what are the new guidelines suggest about assessing these patients? Yeah, so um, we know that a lot of the response to therapy, some of the clinical trials, such as the charted trial, um, looked at the extent of the disease as an important uh, prognosticator of response to therapy. So the guidelines recommend that looking at the extent of disease as an important uh, component, and then we usually divide those men into low or high volume. Now that may sound arbitrary, but again, some of the results from the trials that we'll talk about, um, they showed significant differences in the outcomes based on the volume of disease. So if you have uh, say greater than four bony metastases or at least one of those outside of the spine or the pelvis and or the presence of soft tissue disease or visceral metastases, those are patients that would be categorized as high volume, whereas the low volume would be patients with say three or four um, confined to their uh, skeleton. So high volume, low volume is important. Um, Another thing that's important in the newly diagnosed metastatic patient is introducing genetic counseling and germline testing. So this is new to us as urologists, and we're becoming more and more aware of the importance of this. When I was in training, we would maybe ask if you had an uncle or a father or a brother with prostate cancer, but we now need to ask further questions. We need to know about the history of colon cancer, breast cancer, pancreatic cancer, other cancers follow in some of the germline mutations that can be associated with as many as 10% of newly diagnosed metastatic prostate cancer patients. And then there's a, a, a counseling component to this because um, the findings, if they are found to have one of these genetic mutations, have um, implications for potentially half of their um, children. And while there are laws that protect against discrimination for, say, example, healthcare or employment, some, there are some gaps. And so for example, life insurance is a gap. And so they need to know before they jump into that testing, if they're going to reveal that testing to their family, that there could be some ramifications. The counseling is key as well before you do the testing. All right, well, Nat, we, that takes care of assessment. What about um, the recommendations for treatment of men 
with newly diagnosed metastatic hormone sensitive prostate cancer. Yeah. So again, an area that really came forward with some good new studies in the last, say, five years. Uh, what we found is that while androgen deprivation therapy with LHRH agonists or antagonists or even surgical castration is sort of the backbone of the therapy, we believe that the that that patients should be offered additional therapy. And that additional therapy could be another androgen pathway directive therapy. So those include abiraterone with prednisone, apalutamide, and enzalutamide, or it could be chemotherapy with docetaxel. So the charted study that I mentioned to you earlier was a study that looked at adding the chemotherapy, docetaxel, to traditional androgen deprivation therapy in a randomized study. And in this US study, they found that overall there was about a year benefit of additional survival for men that do the combination therapy. But the therapy was really found to be effective in those men who had high volume disease, as we defined earlier, and not effective really in the low volume metastatic burden. Now there is controversy here because there was another study, the Stampede study that was done in Europe, and that study did show benefit in both high and low volume. So we're now in the mode of looking at whether these patients, why are there differences between these two studies? Some people think it may be because of the way they present. So somebody who presents with metastatic disease, de novo, has a better response perhaps than somebody who's progressed through some local therapies. The US study, the Chartist study, had a lot of people that were sort of progressors, not as many de novo. So we're, we're, we're getting more attention to that as well. But right now, there we believe that ADT alone is insufficient for most men they'll benefit from further androgen-directed therapy or chemotherapy, and that gets back to that multidisciplinary approach. One final thought on that is we used to do a lot of bicalutamide or flutamide or nilutamide, these first-generation antiandrogens, and because these other therapies are so much more effective, it's felt that other than blocking a flare, really patients shouldn't be on that combination. They really should move on to some of these newer treatments. All right, let's transition over to now uh, castrate-resistant prostate cancer, and we'll start with non-metastatic uh, prostate cancer, non-metastatic castrate-resistant prostate cancer. Um, you know, this is an area where there, where there have been some new developments, um, especially with regards to treatment. So what's happening there? Yeah, so first of all, as these new generation PET scans become available, uh, we are sort of seeing a shrinking uh, disease state here, but these are patients with rising PSAs despite castrate levels of testosterone, and you just really can't find the disease on conventional imaging. There were three clinical trials that were performed using uh, three androgen-directed therapies layered on top of their conventional androgen therapy. So that was apalutamide, darolutamide, and enzalutamide, three different trials that all met their primary endpoint. At the time, the FDA agreed that metastasis-free survival was a bad event and that they would get approval based on that primary endpoint. And all three clinical trials using these three different agents all showed benefit for reducing metastasis-free, uh, reducing metastases or benefiting from metastasis-free survival. That now those studies are maturing. And so some of the 
sort of more conservative or naysayers would say, well, you're really just um, moving therapy forward, but you're not really changing how long somebody lives. Those studies have now matured and two of the three studies have subsequently reported survival, overall survival benefit by treating those men earlier. So um, it's an important uh, point that now not only are we preventing a bad event, such as the development of a bone metastasis by about two years, but they're also adding survival benefit. Now the benefit may range from six months or longer depending on the individual and the study, but we're seeing survival benefit by adding therapies earlier before the development of metastatic disease in the castration resistant state. Now how about metastatic castrate resistant prostate cancer? New recommendations from the, the guidelines? Yeah, so I'm gonna keep hammering home the um, importance of uh, introducing genetic testing. Um, so we already talked about in a newly diagnosed metastatic patient, now patients, all patients with castration resistant prostate cancer should also be offered the opportunity for not only germline testing, but somatic testing. These are changes that the tumor goes through after it's been subjected to some of these treatments. And so tissue can show changes that wouldn't be seen just by their germline or their DNA. So we recommend germline and or somatic testing for these patients to look for these mutations. I'll get back to that in a minute. It of course has the same implications in the germline setting as it would in the metastatic setting for the counseling. But now some of these changes are now being linked to treatment. So we'll talk about that a little bit later, but there's good reason to get this information. And in the castration-resistant prostate cancer patient population, these mutations, germline and somatic, have been found in almost 25% of them. So it's a, it's a pretty high yield for finding, and it can alter treatment recommendations in addition. So um, we're really pushing that forward. The other thing, of course, is that um, we, we know that they should be followed and monitored, have annual imaging studies in, in the absence of clinical progression, maybe more often if certainly signs of rapid PSA rise or failing to respond or new symptoms. So um, we definitely don't just follow PSA alone in these patients, and we also layer in that genetic testing. So let's talk a little bit about what's new in treatment options for men with metastatic castration-resistant prostate cancer. Yeah, so I think that we need to continue to remind um, all of our clinicians of the use of the multidisciplinary approach in these patients, and that a lot of the therapies that I've mentioned previously that are showing significant benefit earlier in the disease state got their early indications in castration resistance. So drugs such as abiraterone that's used with prednisone, that's an androgen synthesis blocker, docetaxel, the chemotherapy, and enzalutamide, are all active agents in the patients that have castration-resistant disease. There are some subtleties and some windows of opportunity for men. So for example, in patients with castration resistance but have either asymptomatic or minimally symptomatic, those patients can be offered cipulosal T, which is an immune-based therapy. The reason I say these windows of opportunity is because once they become highly symptomatic, then the products are not labeled as indicated in that scenario. And again, all the agents that I've mentioned have survival benefit linked to them. So if you don't get that early on, you probably will never receive that therapy. 
Another therapy that is um, unique and specific in the castration resistant space is radium-223. So the use of radium for patients that have uh, bony metastases, no visceral metastases, they can have lymph nodes up to three centimeters in size. Those patients uh, can re uh, receive survival benefit from the addition of a radionuclide therapy directed at their bone. So it's an important component too, and that can be given before docetaxel or after docetaxel. So that's something to remember too. Do we have new information regarding sequencing therapy? That's something that I've always found a little bit challenging to understand. Yeah. So it is still, you know, an area of active investigation, but we're learning more and some studies are coming forward. So for example, we know that we should consider that prior treatment um, and consider an alternative uh, class of medications, for example, in patients that are failing. Um, in patients, for example, who receive prior docetaxel therapy with or without abiraterone plus prednisone or enzalutamide, those patients may be offered cabazitaxel. So in other words, switching somebody who's failing abiraterone simply to enzalutamide or vice versa really doesn't provide a lot of benefit, may change their PSAs for a short time, but studies are now showing that we should probably go to a different class of, of medication. So the secondary chemotherapy, cabazitaxel is certainly an option. Um, also, for those men who have received prior docetaxel um, and abiraterone or enzalutamide really should not just keep hammering at that androgen pathway. So we see that all too often in patients that are, for example, referred to a multidisciplinary clinic. They've really just been switching back and forth between oral agents that are attacking sort of the same uh, pathway. We really want to discourage that. Obviously, clinical trials would be uh, ripe for those type of patients, but um, in lieu of that, certainly cabazitaxel um, has shown benefit in that area. One thing we hear a lot about is precision medicine. And where do we stand um, with respect to precision, medis precision medicine and prostate cancer treatment? Yeah. So again, new um, this year and presented you know, at the AUA, just coming out was our very first study. But we now know when we look for those genetic alterations, and they go by different names, but DDR mutations or um, you know, the, the uh, DNA um, changes that um, can occur. There are um, BRCA1 and 2 mutations, ATM. There's a, there's a little basket of these type of changes that can be looked for in the germline. But when we see these alterations in their DDR mutations, these patients um, can be offered new class of therapy. These are the PARP inhibitors. And so there are two FDA-approved PARP inhibitors, Olaparib and Rucaparib, both indicated for men with these type of um, alterations in their tumor or in their germline. And these therapies have been shown to be active and can delay progression of their cancer by adding them. But again, you won't know if they're eligible unless you do this germline testing because these products are specifically labeled for that type of, of patient. So you have to think about it. You have to order the testing, whether it's a tissue sample or a uh, germline test, or um, they're even beginning to get liquid 
uh, testing available. So you can look for some of these alterations in the circulating tumor cells. Um, there's also uh, some patients that have microsatellite instability, and that's um, kind of indifferent to the tumor type. So they could have lung cancer, bladder cancer, prostate cancer, and those patients can respond to pembrolizumab. So we have a couple of agents. We're at the infancy of this precision-based therapy, but we're starting and they're getting response and we're starting to see druggable targets. And so again, as we do more genetic testing, catalog these tumors, and then test those, um, those phenotypes against different uh, therapeutics, I think you know, that we're only going to learn more and more and become a little more precise in our ability to target these tumors. And then again, the, it seems to me if we've seen, if we've learned anything, these are tried in sort of the end stage patients first, those castration resistance that are failing. But as these therapeutics get moved into the earlier disease state, we usually see a significantly better benefit and a significantly extended survival. So um, I think that's really one of the biggest messages of these guidelines is that we need to be engaged with our patients. We need to offer germline testing, genetic counseling, biopsies of these tissue types to look for alterations that could potentially be uh, therapeutically druggable. And that genetic testing, germline testing <clears throat> should take place at the initial uh, at the initial time when metastatic castrate uh, castration resistant prostate cancer is diagnosed. Yes, and it can take place. So you know, patients cycle in and out, and you've been treating them for a while. But when a new when a patient returns to your clinic and has castration resistance, and especially if they're starting to escape the controls of their current therapeutic, you definitely should be offering them these type of tests. Well, I know that there's some information in the guidelines regarding bone health, and I figure that would be um, sort of a good place for us to finish up. Okay, you bet. So um, all of us are aware, or almost all of us are aware as urologists that we're treating men and men that are aging, and there is a baseline amount of bone loss in these men. So we should discuss the risks of osteoporosis uh, with men as they get older, and certainly men who get onto androgen deprivation therapy are at increased risk for not only osteopenia, but osteoporosis, and we should screen for that. And one of the ways we do that is a DEXA scan. It's relatively inexpensive, and that can give us the result that we want to sort of categorize them initially. We also should make general recommendations that don't cost anything. Exercise, especially weight-bearing exercise, calcium and vitamin D relatively inexpensive and, and can be used. We know that smoking cessation and everything in moderation when it comes to alcohol are all important components of improving on their bone health. In men with advanced prostate cancer at high risk for fracture due to bone loss, we can also recommend preventive treatments such as bisphosphonates or the use of denosumab, a ranked ligand inhibitor. And if you're not familiar with this type of treatment, you can certainly refer them to a specialist such as a rheumatologist who would be, but many uh, multidisciplinary clinics are very comfortable managing these type of things. In patients with castration resistant um, disease, as well as bony metastases, those patients need to be on these agents and they get them. The, the frequency of these treatments are, are vary with 
um, what you're treating, but in castration-resistant patients with bony metastases, you're really trying to prevent those skeletal-related events, and those patients are certainly appropriate for the bisphosphonate or the denosumab, as I mentioned earlier. Well, Mike, that was a great summary. If you had to give two or three sort of take-home messages or messages that you would just want to drive home about the new guidelines, what would that be? Um, okay, I think uh, the development of a multidisciplinary approach to the patients in your practice, use all the tools available to you, um, institution of earlier thought processes for genetic testing like we talked about, um, the use of combination therapies, um, the fact that you would sequence these therapies if a therapy's failing, switch to a different class of therapy, and then sort of the excitement around some of the newer therapeutics that are really that precision medicine that may ultimately be the real game changers. Because if you remember, none of these therapies are curing cancer. They're, they're slowing it, they're delaying it, they're improving survival, they're improving the quality of life of these men with advanced disease. What we really want is to get to the cure. So I think if we keep working backwards and keep getting back to the earlier disease state, find some of these changes earlier and do the right trials to determine if we can eradicate the disease, even when it's advanced or biologically aggressive, that's our best hope. Dr. Michael Cookson, uh, professor and chair of the Department of Urology at the University of Oklahoma and the current president of the Society for Urologic Oncology. Thank you so much for that really excellent summary of the new prostate cancer, advanced prostate cancer guidelines from AUA, SUO, and ASTRO. Uh, this has been a rapidly uh, developing area, and I'm sure that uh, you'll be back to talk to us in the not too distant future about even more updates. Um, uh, it's really been a pleasure having you. Well, thank you, and thank the AUA for helping to promote prostate cancer.